The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hi there, I'm Quentin Fottrell, the Managing Editor for Personal Finance Market Watch. Together with me here today is my colleague, Andrew Kirshner, a personal finance reporter for Market Watch, and Greg Robb, senior reporter at Market Watch in Washington, D.C. Hi, Andrew and Greg. Thank you for being here. Hey, thank you for having us. Of course. So coronavirus, inflation, rising gas prices, war. It's a bad time. The stock market is, is so sensitive to this, the, this conflict in the Ukraine, this bombardment of the Ukraine by Russia. And it's not, it's not exactly a beacon for rational thinking if you look at the last, at the performance of the market in, in recent weeks. Um, thus far, aluminium, copper, titanium, zinc, lead, crude oil, up and down, wheat, natural gas, and coal are just a selection of the products that have seen price rises in um, recent weeks since Russia's uh, invasion of the Ukraine began. So my first question, Greg, is to you, how insulated or not are we here in the U.S. from these events? Thanks, Quentin. Good to see you guys. It's good to do this. Um, I, I think the base case is that the United States doesn't have much uh trade with Russia, so we are insulated from them. Russia's, if you look at it just from the, you know, the num the raw numbers, Russia's like a small country, like a South American country. It, it doesn't um, impact us in terms of trade. But um, that being said, you always have to say right away that we're in uncharted territory and, and we're just going to have to see how things play out here. Right. And oil prices, of course, fell back below $100 a barrel this week after reaching a 14-year high. And these wild uh, swings show the sensitivity of the markets to the war in Ukraine. And um, unless major producers increase output, the International Energy Agency has said this week that the supply shock from the war in Ukraine could push the oil market into a deficit. So Greg, as you say, we are in uncharted territory. Uh, Nicholas Mulder, assistant professor in the Department of History in the College of Arts and Sciences, uh, an author of The Economic Weapon, The Rise of Sanctions as a Tool of Modern War, has said that economic sanctions of Russia could have a number of effects. And this is what he told Cornell Center for International Studies. He said that could be the difference between this war dragging on for months and even years, and us achieving a ceasefire which will protect civilians and give us opportunity to reach negotiated settlements. Making those clear sanction demands, I think, is the most important thing right now we can do. So, so far, Greg, you're uh, the you know, politics guy. How effective have these sanctions been? It's early days, Quentin. Uh, I mean, I think people should really understand that this is draconian things. We've we've thrown Russia out of 
the global economy um, with our sanctions. I mean, when Putin first came into power and Clinton in the in, in the old days, the U.S. we even brought Russia into the G7 and into the G20. We really tried to make them a partner, and with the sanctions that we've put in place now, we have we have almost thrown up like an economic iron curtain. But the one thing that people should know is that it. And so Russians right away, they, they can feel it. The middle class can feel it there. The, the rubles fallen and their economy is on shaky ground. And, and, and Russians, ordinary Russians are leaving Russia. And it's only going to get worse. The, the thing that everybody cautions is that it's not these full effects, which are going to come, aren't felt right now. And it's almost like a race there because the Russians are continuing the war and the sanctions haven't really bit in full sense. So um, there's a look that sense that Russia is trying to rush and get as much as they can. So it's, it's a, it's a tough, tense time. Right. And, you know, energy prices, of course, are on the rise. Russia pumps out around 9 million barrels of crude oil a day, slightly less than the 11.6 million barrels produced in the U S but to put that in context, daily global oil production is around 78 million barrels. So that, I guess, speaks to your point, Greg, about the size of, of Russia's at least economy and output in terms of, of um, oil. And that, that's obviously helped the rise in energy prices, has obviously helped energy producing stocks. But car companies and industrial stocks have not, so fa have not fared so well in the wake of this conflict. Andy, to get back to the, the main thrust of our session here today, what how is this rise in gas prices that we're seeing that or that Americans are seeing at the gas pump? How is that impacting people here? Yeah, so to to stick to take a step back, um, the price of crude oil it normally accounts for about roughly roughly half of the cost of what goes into a gallon of gas, and then you have other things like taxes and so on and so forth. So, you know, what happens in the, you know, the global crude oil markets really matters for consumers at the pump. And so what we're seeing with consumers at the pump and getting that um, sticker shock right now is there's less driving going on. Um, there's more strategic driving that's going on. I mean, in, this is at least to, according to the people that I have talked to about this and some of the early surveys that I've been uh, reading and reporting on about how people are responding to higher gas prices. Um, for example, I talked to one woman in Florida and uh, her routine used to be she'd drive from one side of Pensacola to the other so she could pick up her grandson and bring him to his pre-kindergarten class or uh, pick him up at the pre-kindergarten class and bring him back. Um, she's not doing that now because that's too expensive. Uh, I talked to um, a man in New Jersey, and he was saying he has this long-running game in New York City, uh, this long-running football game in New York City on the weekends. Uh, and only recently, he started this carpooling um, with with another guy so that he can shave down those costs. Uh, and I talked to a man in San Diego and in California, which last I checked has, on average, the highest gas prices in the country. And um, he's more, quote, intentional with how he goes about his driving and his chores and his business. So he'll group chores together. But one thing that he did is he um, 
He let his Chevy Silverado get really low on gas. He doesn't like to do that, but he did it. Um, he put in just enough uh, so that he could get to the local Costco, which is which you know is known for the relatively cheaper gas prices. Uh, and there he plunked down $130 um, to fill up there and take advantage of those slightly lower prices. Uh, the one catch was is uh, he had to wait about 30, more than 30 minutes to get to the pump itself because so many other people had the same idea that he did of trying to take advantage of those lower prices because everyone's looking for a way to uh, save those costs right now. Right. Uh, it seems from what Andy says, Greg, that we're still very reliant on these. We're very sensitive in America to, to this movement in gas prices. Yeah, I mean, I guess I should have said at the beginning that the one caveat here is that Russia is a big player in the energy market, in the oil and gas market. And um, so that I think the the energy sector right when the war started, sort of went into sort of panic mode and sort of the worst case scenario and drove the price of oil way up thinking that there was going to be a scarcity um and so that really got felt right away um all across the country and now but and now oil, of course oil prices have come down a lot and but prices have stayed high because that's the way um things work um but i think you know, I guess that is like the one sector that people are going to feel it. The the other sector that Russia and Ukraine are big on is um, in wheat, and and and, but again, that it will be felt more in um, like sub-Saharan Africa. That'll that impact will have in other parts of the world, not the United States. So we'll have to see. Our we have the best second to none energy reporters at MarketWatch, in my opinion. I think those guys do a great job, and and they think that the real rubber is going to hit the road in a couple of months when Russian supplies are really, really off the market, and like I said, that Russia is really disconnected from the global economy. So, and and we haven't lived through that. We haven't. It doesn't look like OPEC is going to replace the gas and the you know the oil we get from from Russia. So. That we'll have to see how things go, but um, yeah, you know, definitely pain in the pump is something that people are going to probably be seeing for a while now. Right, and uh, Andy, uh, when it comes to commuting and traveling, people are, are pretty much between a rock and a hard place. Uh, on the one hand, there is this push to return to the office that means more commuting for people. On the other hand, people are understandably eager to take a break from the office and to take a vacation. And I know Jay Capassi, our, our reporter at MarketWatch, recently wrote about people canceling their travel plans uh, based on these higher en oil prices, energy prices. And and he said that the he spoke to one woman who said that the the co the cost of driving to her hotel to where she was taking her vacation was more expensive than the hotel itself and she ended up just you know nixing her plans so um have you what have you heard on this front in terms of it being you know we're coming up to spring break people are planning their vacations um obviously we've heard a lot about work-life balance and people you know really needing time time away so what, what have you heard about this andy yeah the, the same thing i mean along the lines of um you know what i was talking people who are really conscious of, of their gas prices. I mean, gas prices are, are, are things that people, 
are intensely aware of, intimately aware of. They'll drive by them all the time. They know what they paid. It's a number that people are very, very aware of. Um, and, and so, yeah, there are people who are scaling back those, those trips for the spring and the summer. Uh, you know, I mean, along the lines of numbers and the psychological impact of numbers, um, AAA says that people really start thinking about uh, gas costs and how they can save on gas when um, the price hits the $4 mark. And then they increasingly act on that when the price hits the $5 mark and fuel savings costs. I mean, now those are things from carpooling to grouping your trips to making sure you have enough air in your tires, but number one, um, driving less. So they recently did a survey, AAA, and more than half, 59% said that they would change their driving habits if um, the gas prices reached $4 mark and three quarters said they would do it at the $5 mark. Uh, what's interesting to me about that survey is, is um, the pollsters actually conducted it just a little bit before um, prices really started to spiral. So, you, you know, that, that's not even really getting a real gauge on um, what is happening now. For the record, uh, gas as of today, Wednesday is $4.30, according to AAA. Um, that number is about, is three pennies down from the record, um, which was set on March 11th. Um, again, you know, the, the number one is driving less. Uh, and in that same survey, 80 people said that they would drive less. Um, but yeah, the, 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 you, Quinton, you also mentioned the return to office, and that's like the big cross current here. Um, at the same time that gas prices are going up, more want their workers back in the office or commuting. Um, you know, I want to keep checking on the issue, but when I talk to some traffic and mobility experts on this and um, asking what big picture patterns have been so far, they said so far they have not seen decreases in, um, in driving. In fact, driving is up. Um, compared to pre-pandemic levels uh, on the whole across the nation. Uh, it, it, things vary when you drill down into certain metropolitan areas and so on. But uh, that is a, that's a big question still to come of what the impact is on the return to office. And also, um, if employers are going to you know, give, give their workers a break somehow, uh, either scale back those plans or give more money or, or what. Uh, because again, employers, workers really know about that know about that money, uh, what they spend on gas. And by the way, we're also in this uh, labor shortage right now. So it may be, you know, those those trips, uh, the cost of those trips might be what pushes them out the door. Right, right. I, I want to, thanks, Andy. I want, it's 12.15. I want to remind the audience to submit questions. And on that note, uh, Michelle asks, once all is settled and hopefully reasonably, what are the potential future impacts on the Russian economy and its overall global role or position? Uh, you know, Russia defaulting on its debt is seen as a, a, a probable um, by some analysts, uh, in fact, not helped by the sanctions against Russian financial institutions and the central bank. It faces being locked out of global capital markets at worst, or at the very least being saddled with higher borrowing costs for the foreseeable future 
if and or when it does default on its debt debt um it would that clearly would certainly hurt russians um, incomes after accounting for inflation and and thereby their purchasing power um wells fargo economists jay bryson and nicole surf have put it more bluntly um michelle they've said the entire russian economy could be crippled if businesses in the country are unable to make and receive payments from foreigners they wrote greg what's your take uh, a hobbled russian economy obviously matters worse for the ordinary citizens there we've seen the oligarchs move there are private jets and and yachts to avoid um sanctions confiscations um but will will uh, uh, these a hobbled economy put more pressure on vladimir putin and bring him back to the negotiating table well i guess that's the hope i mean over the last 20 years in russia they they have developed a a middle a middle class has arisen in in the country that likes to travel overseas and has had some you know a lot of comforts that maybe weren't available during the the soviet era so it's going to be a rude shock to them their their economy is going to be crippled um the hope is that they can put pressure on vladimir putin but that's a hope um and we you know it's as some analysts say you, you never know how if an autocrat is in trouble until the day they're in trouble so it's it's hard to to suss that out the protests there have been widespread there have been a lot of people you know courageous people protesting in russia but um it it one of the things is it's, it's going to take it's a slow process and there's a lot of troops that russia has in ukraine and and they don't seem to be stopping now so that's that's where we are today right and you know as you as you uh, reference after years of instability and economic um uh weakness putin ironically was seen as a strong man and that was part of his appeal you know his popularity was well he may not have been the most democratic politician uh, uh but but at the same time he he was popular for a long period of time and that that has brought them to where they are today in the world to where we are today and i i think that it's clear as you say uh not until the day uh, of reckoning will we will we really know um if, if an autocrat is in trouble that's a great a great phrase greg we're also you know we're what are we three weeks into this war and people are talking about stagflation uh fears of rising inflation and slowing growth driven by you know COVID 19 um and it was already on investors minds because of that but russia's bombardment of of their neighbor has has um, brought about this, this specter of stagflation again. And the, the Stuck in the Middle blogger, Mr. Blonde, recently looked at stagflation episodes between 1960 and 2019 and concluded that defensive stocks such as pharmaceutical, healthcare, equipment, services, utilities, food and tobacco, and even defensive tech um, such as software outperformed but it doesn't really get away from the the broader economic um, impact that stagflation would bring would bring to us here in the U.S. What's your take on that, Greg? Well, stagflation—if you think of the U.S. economy as a 
a patient. Stagflation is really when it's a really sick patient. Um, you have, that's a period when you have the unemployment rate rising, so people are losing jobs, and at the same time, inflation is rising. So it, um, you know, if the Fed makes life really difficult for the Federal Reserve, and um, it is best avoided. Now, it comes in different degrees, just as, you know, you get sick, it's different degrees. But right now, you know, inflation right now is in the United States is at 40-year highs. The Ukraine situation is going to probably boost inflation. It's going to, the Fed's you're not going to be able to kind of bring inflation down as much as they want this year, for sure. It almost seems like it's that's baked in the cake. And growth is slowing. So there is a little bit of that movement. But when I talk to most economists now, they they think that the U.S. economy has a lot of power and oomph. It does, you know, and COVID in the United States is retreating. So there, this summer is going to be a return to kind of normalcy in the sense that there's going to be a lot of travel. So the United, the economy does have a lot of things going for it. So it's kind of like, We'll have to keep watching that and and see how that goes. But, um, you know, it's just hopefully we can kind of eke, eke through this without that kind of happening. Right. We have another question from Tidor. What is the asset allocation for the rest of 2022? I mean, that's a, uh, a, a, a pretty big question. Um, I think in times like this, uh, you know, long term investments and long-term growth um, are always um, the most secure, um, not to try and trade off the news. Um, but uh, do, do Greg, do you have any opinion on that? Uh, that would be me committing malpractice if I told people how to invest. Yeah. That's I try to tell people how things are on the ground and um, they, they can right. turn to other people for that. Right. So um, that's about as far as I'll go as well. I, I always say I don't even recommend Broadway plays, so I'm not going to recommend where you put your money. Uh, so um, Russia and Ukraine are referred to as the breadbasket of the world. Russia and Ukraine combined account for about 25% of global wheat exports. And Ukraine alone accounts for about 13%, and that's according to one estimate by by RBC Capital Markets, concerns about future COP prospects are leading to a surge in prices. Now, wheat prices were already high um, and stockpiles were running low. Um, so this invasion of Ukraine has obviously disrupted Black Sea trading. It's bad news for countries that are big importers of, of wheat, Egypt, for example. Um, and while others rely on wheat as a staple. So, Greg, is this something that has come on your radar screen? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the this is the, I mean, if you just stop and for a minute and think about this war and the tragedy of this war and just how, you know, horrible it is, is that now we're going to be talking about hunger around the world and the rise of hunger and poverty. Um, it's just, uh, it's just breathtaking. Yeah, the, the IMF sees there's three channels. There are many countries, not just Egypt, but Egypt for sure, in the in the Middle East and in Africa, rely on Russian and Ukrainian wheat, and they're 
they're going to have to pay more for it. The countries are going to be poorer. Their current accounts are going to go down. And um, and then the, the second thing is countries closer to Ukraine that have supply, so supply chains and all the refugees, there's going to be that crisis. And, and, and so the whole global economy is going to be out of whack. It was out of whack for the pandemic and it was healing, but now here we go, we're going to be out of whack again. And the third thing is just this uncertainty in financial markets that we've already seen that you talked a lot about at the beginning. There's there's just a ton of uncertainty out there. We just haven't lived through this in a long time. We have super sensitive financial markets and um, you know, the Federal Reserve thinks that they can backstop this, that they don't think there'll be a, the Fed thinks that they have the tools in place, that there won't be a, you know, a rush for dollars and a financial crisis in this. But I think it's just um, really uncertain times. Right. Uh, Greg, you've written that the Fed policymakers know they have to start raising interest rates given the low unemployment rate in the U.S. and inflation at 40 year highs. They need to do something to cool inflation, but without tipping the U.S. into another recession, it's a tough balancing act. And, and you, you said that the Fed has to move, even though the wisest course of action might be to delay until the impact from the war in Ukraine is more clear. So why do you say that the Fed has to move now? We're expecting a, a, a rate increase today. Um, is it because the markets have built in the expectation that it's raising rates or or that it just has run out of options to dampen inflation. No, the 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 Fed kept since the pandemic started in early 2020. The Fed moved quickly to put rates, interest rates, and their their policy in the position to really like cushion the economy from the pandemic. You know, we went through the the economy closed down, and they've really kept rates low, trying to kind of coax the U.S. economy to into a better health. Um, that was their policy stance and they just really wanted the pandemic to end. Of course, they've kept that policy in place ever since then. Now, some people think they're late to, that they're, they should have been moving away from this policy earlier, but they know now that they have to move away from this ultra easy policy stance. They, they're sort of on, on the path to neutral. They want to get rates to a position where not that it's hurting the economy, but that interest rates are closer to neutral, which is 2.5%, which is wouldn't doesn't hurt the economy, doesn't help it much. So right now they're close to zero and 2.5% is the goal. They can't move quickly because they don't want to upset financial markets, but they have to start moving. And so that's why we predicting and a, a, we well, like Wall Street is predicting steady rate hikes from the Fed. Now they're going to pause sometimes and look around. They're going to be reactive to news from the Ukraine and everywhere, but they have a they have this journey that they have to take, and they're going to start. They're going to take it now. They might. It's this is the question we don't know how fast they go to two point five percent. Can they go steadily in quarter point moves? That right now they think it'll take them like a year or two to do that. But now some economists are starting to pound the table and think that they should get to 2.5% sometime next year. Then they have the big question next year in 2024, do they have to take rates up to 4% and really kind of slow things down to control inflation? That'll be a very interesting time for them. But now it's just kind of like buckle their, you know, tie your shoes, pick up your bag and get moving. And that's what they're doing.
right? So we're not going to we're not expecting any surprises today, is what you're saying. There's a lot that there's a they're not the key rate. The Fed Chairman Powell, like the headline he gave, he telegraphed the headlines earlier this month, saying that you know they're going to move a quarter point. So I think that's they're going to be their policy stance. They're going to start telling people what's going to do. They don't want the market to start guessing. It's not the time for markets to be guessing. But there are a lot of details underneath that the market is going to be paying close attention to this sort of sense of pace, how much they're concerned about Ukraine. So it's not it's there's a lot going on today at the Fed meeting for sure. And people are going to be paying close attention to it. It's not a yawner. Right, it's not a owner. Andy, I wanted to bring this to you as a consumer reporter. Uh, what the impact of a rate hike, assuming it's a quarter percent percentage point on credit cards, savings accounts, and, and mortgage rates, even? Yeah. So, as uh, Greg mentioned, uh, the expectation is it's going to be this quarter point hike on um, you know on the key rate, and the experts I talked to on this uh, asking what how much that will actually cost you in borrowing costs uh and so on and in uh, what is that real life effect and they they have said a quarter point basis uh basis point increase at the end of the day is not going to be um not going to have much of an impact on your wallet but as uh, as greg said there's no expectation that this is the end of the game i mean there's these steady rate hikes coming and when these steady rate rate hikes do come that accumulated will have um this this noticeable effect um but back to this 25 uh basis point move for now so suppose you have five thousand dollars on a credit card bill and um that is just about over what what the average balance was as of the third quarter according to transunion uh and suppose that you have an apr of uh, 16.44 and that was the average fourth quarter um apr according to the federal reserve so now here comes this first rate hike and aprs are heavily influenced by uh, the federal funds rate and that that hike would bring up the APR essentially one to one, according to an expert I talked to, which means that the average APR in this in our hypothetical um, in a month or two would go to uh, 16.69. Um, so our hypothetical borrower has uh, $5,000 on their um, on their bill and they're carrying that balance month to month. Um, and if they take two years to pay that down, um, that is 16 extra dollars over the life of the loan before they pay it off. Now, so, you know, $16, I mean, that, you know, that is in this grand scheme of things, um, that's not a major drag on your wallet. But now suppose that you've got multiple quarter point hikes. Um, suppose you've got six. That's something I've heard at some points along the way. That would bring you to a 1.5 APR increase. And that would bring you to roughly a hundred dollar increase just in interest extra interest that you're paying over the life of the loan um and that's that's real cash that um in this time of really hot inflation is money that could go to gas it could go it could have gone to groceries instead it's going to um you know interest um savings accounts are another place where you will uh you'll get an increase in your uh annual percentage yield uh, one expert said, uh, suppose you have $10,000 in your account, 
um, you get there's the you know the rate hike of 25 basis point comes that could be 10 extra dollars um, over a year. Uh, but if there's six quarter point hikes, um, that would turn into roughly a hundred extra dollars. So again, this is um, this is real money that uh, over time accumulated um, it makes a difference in a person's pocket. Right. Um, so I think that's basically all we've got time for today. Um, thank you both for for being here, Andrew and Greg, and thanks to the audience for tuning in. Of course, our thoughts are with the people of Ukraine um, and uh, what they're going through at the moment. And uh, uh, please uh, join us tomorrow about the rising um, gasoline prices. Um, Opus analysts Tom Close and Denton Sinka Grana uh, join Barron's Lauren Rublin to examine the forces pushing gasoline and diesel prices higher amid the conflict in Ukraine. What can be done to stem the rise, they're going to ask. So um, thank you for listening. Stay healthy. And again, um, have, a, have a wonderful rest of the day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.